Happy Saturday morning, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vincent. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. All right, so today we have a more practical episode as we're going to be talking about leaving your church. What does that look like in light of the First and Second London Baptist Confessions of Faith? Let me just get my... uh, hot chocolate here. In my London Lyceum uh, Baptist cup, I think that's William Kiffin with sunglasses on, so pick up your cup from the London Lyceum if you can. We also have our merch store too, where we have our own mugs. I I need to get one of mine display on here, but you can do that. Ah, Yes, my hot chocolate keeps me going. All right, so looking at leaving our church, okay, this is a, a topic that, you know, people leave churches all the time. People are they're church hopping or elite churches for whatever reason. Um, and I think it's an important topic to talk about, especially as Reformed and especially as Reformed Baptists, right? So looking at this from a Reformed Baptist, particular Baptist perspective, um, I want to, to dive into this a little bit. And one thing as we're going into this that I appreciate so much as you know, I was studying this, and just in general, the plethora of history that we as particular Reformed Baptists have, and the heritage that we have with our forefathers who laid the foundation work for us to be able to learn these things, to study these things, and to glean from them, even if that wasn't necessarily their intention. But we have material that we can use, that we can see how do we understand the scriptures in light of these areas, or how did these men address these issues? Can we learn from them? Did they do it right, or did they make mistakes? Those are all things we can consider as we're going through this, and I think can be very helpful as we're studying these things. So, you know, looking at like what the Renahans have done, Jim Renahan, the Vindication of the Truth, commentary on the first London Baptist Confession of Faith, his commentary on the second London Baptist Confession of Faith, and I'm also going I pulled from uh, his doctrinal thesis on ecclesiology. So it's uh, it's definitely a blessing to see these things, uh, you know, this material and all of these things that we have available. Uh, Brother, Federal Theology, thank you so much for the super chat. Really appreciate it. I'm glad that this content is a benefit to you, brother, and um, I really appreciate the support. Thank you so much for your contribution. And I hope, especially today, that this is a beneficial episode uh, as we talk about uh, leaving the church as it relates to, um, you know, the confessions. But, you know, as we're looking at these historical sources that we can, that we can use here, we can learn from other men and what they have done ahead of us who uh, have worked these things out, or at least tried to, right? Uh, if you look at Proverbs 21.11, Proverbs 21.11, when the scoffer is punished, the simple is made wise, but when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. So we can learn, you know, from those who were corrected, maybe those who, uh, you know, weren't necessarily on the right side of history and learned the hard way or did the wrong thing. We can learn from that, uh, but we can also be instructed by what others did too. When the wise are instructed, he receives knowledge. That's what the proverb says. So as we're learning from other wise people, 
from other circumstances, the wise man receives that knowledge and he takes that and applies it to himself. And we know in the Proverbs, when it talks about being a wise person, it's not just being smart. That's really not the issue there. Uh, sure, that's involved, but really the issue is of a moral standing. The wise person is the one who fears the Lord because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so when that person is being wise and they're being instructed, that wise person receives knowledge. He's gaining knowledge and he's understanding or increasing his understanding in the way of wisdom. And so that's the mindset we should have when we're coming to historical sources, like looking at the history surrounding uh, our confession and, and other sources that we can see uh, and learn wisdom and receiving knowledge from these people. So this is very, very important as we're, we're looking at these things that we are, uh, you know, addressing them uh, in the correct way, but also just learning from men who came before us, seeing what they, uh, what they did right, what they did wrong, uh, and being able to, you know, look at those things in light of scripture. And it can help us as we're looking at scripture, see what did men understand about these things before us, right? How did they apply these truths? How did they try to work through them? Okay, maybe they didn't lean in the right direction, but now I know not to do that and what to do over here. So those are the kind of things that I think can be helpful. And then also, as particular Baptists, uh, Reformed Baptists, we should be able to want to live consistently with our tradition, right? If our tradition, according to our confession of faith, is saying something, we should try to live consistently with it. That doesn't mean the, the confession is infallible or inerrant, but uh, we should try to stay within that core substantial tradition that we claim to hold to, right? And so if we say one thing over here, but we're not living in accordance with this over here, we should examine why and, and try to align ourselves with it where we can. So uh, all of these things come into play, I think, when we're talking about this discussion about leaving your church, right? So if we look at some of the confessional language here, so I'm going to read a little bit from, again, this is from Renahan's For the Vindication of the Truth. You can pick this up at Founders Press, um, a very helpful work on the first London Baptist Confession of Faith and different editions of it that came out. Uh, so I'm going to read uh, a little bit from the 1644 and the 1646 edition of the first London Baptist Confession of Faith on this topic. And this is from page 181 of Renahan's book. Uh, he says, or the confessions say, so this is from the 1644. It says, thus being rightly gathered, established, and still proceeding in Christian communion in obedience of the gospel of Christ, none ought to separate for faults and corruptions, which may, as long as a church consists of men subject to failings, will fall out and arise among them, even in true constituted churches, until they have, in due order, sought redress thereof. And then the 1646 says, thus being rightly gathered and continuing in the obedience of the gospel of Christ, None are to separate for faults and corruptions, for as long as the church consists of men subject to failings, there will be difference in the true constituted church until they have in due order and tenderness sought redress thereof. So you can see, you know, some of these, you can already see this principle of practical application of how do you address issues in the church, right? It's And these are issues dealing with offenses from another brother, brother sinned against you. How do you deal with that? You know, these are just it, the, the confession is trying to address practical matters um, uh, in the church. Uh, let's see. 
unfishable said, in your opinion, do you be sovereign grace churches are a good choice if leaving uh, SBC? Um, unfishable, I'm not going to be able to speak on that directly, unfortunately. Um, I have some experience in the sovereign grace uh, area, but not to an extent where I can give you like a, a you know, a play by play in terms of, you know, what to avoid and what not, um, you know, comprehensively. So I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to stay away from that. Um, I, I just rather err on the side of caution. I think there are probably some good sovereign grace churches out there. Obviously I'm a reformed Baptist, so I would be, you know, saying, you know, I, I wouldn't go to a sovereign grace church necessarily, but, um, I would, I'm not going to say that they're bad or they're all bad or that, you know, you should avoid it completely. So I want to be careful in that area. Um, but yeah, hopefully that's, you know, brings some clarity, but I'm sorry. I can't, you know, give you like a, a straight answer on that. Good question though. Good question. All right. So the confession here is laying out some practical application for how to deal with sin issues between brethren. Another brother has offended another brother. How is that offended brother to react? How is he to apply himself, right? Hey, is he to leave? Is he to cause problems? Is he to, what is he to do? And so the, the confession is trying to provide biblical guidance for what that looks like, right? So if we look at the set, second London Baptist Confession of Faith, this was, so the first one was from 1644, and he had a 1646 edition, and I think there was a 1650s edition. So this is the second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which was adopted in 1689, by those particular Baptist churches in England, specifically in London. You have uh, chapter 26, paragraph 13. It says, No church members, upon any offense taken by them, having performed their duty required of them towards the person they are offended at, ought to disturb any church order or absent themselves from the assemblies of the church or administration of any ordinances upon the account of such offense at any of their fellow members, but wait upon Christ in the further proceeding of uh, the church. And I want to read a little bit here from uh, Renahan's book, uh, Edification and Beauty. This is Dr. Jim Renahan's doctrinal thesis, where he talks about the ecclesiology or the, the doctrine of the church as it relates to the particular Baptists. This is from page 55, um, but it, this is in light of this particular passage. So he says, uh, Hansard Nollies brought the Hansard Nollies was one of the signers of the Second London Baptist Confession. He said he, Hansard Nollies brought the responsibilities of members and the exercise of discipline together. Using the explicit words of paragraph three and thirteen of chapter twenty-six, he argued that church members should not separate themselves from their churches in the cases of offenses or defections until such time as the offenders are proceeded against and those offenses be removed, uh, reformed, or removed by the laws of God's house or Christ removes the candlestick from the church. Even in the scriptures, elements of unsound doctrines and corrupt manners may be noticed, and Christ did not presently forsake those churches. So all churches have some mixture of error in them, right? All churches have some mixture of error. You're not going to find a church that's going to be perfect, that's going to have uh, some kind of sinless group over here, uh, or any kind of freedom from sin entirely right? We're no longer slaves to sin, but we still have sin that uh, a sinful flesh that uh, we struggle with, right? 
So it, you're not going to have this uh, the churches that are completely free from sin. So if you're going to say that a church is going to be rightly constituted, but a church also rightly constituted is imperfect, you're going to have to live with imperfect people, right? Or you're not going to have a church. And that would be uh, causing all kinds of problems as it relates to ecclesiology and meeting as a church and worshiping God, right? You're not going to be able to do that effectively, uh, or you're not going to be able to worship God at all if you don't meet together, right? And again, church is not a building, right? Church is not, uh, you know, the sign on the door. That's just a means to an end. Church is wherever God's people are gathered together in a local church setting, concert, you know, gathered together uh, to worship God in that corporate Lord's Day setting. However, uh, if you have people who are just leaving churches because they're offended over what somebody else did, expecting there to be some kind of sinless perfection in the church, you're going to have all kinds of problems as it relates to, uh, you're going to have all kinds of problems as it relates to just the doctrine of the church. Now you're undermining the church itself, and you're going to, to create all kinds of problems. So, I, you know, you see this discussion surrounding the imperfection of the church. Uh, in in that even in imperfect churches, you still see Christians are still called to worship and to honor God and to walk in a way that's pleasing to him, bearing up with one another and loving one another, not just to throw in the towel and run away, right? And that's kind of what uh, I think you see here with the particular Baptists, all right? And according to Renahan too, in the same book, church membership came with high expectations for particular Baptists which included not leaving the church being uh, due to being wronged by another party in the church. Uh, joining a church was a serious affair. It wasn't something to be taken lightly. It was something that had required review and analysis of the people joining. And then it came with strong personal responsibility and high accountability. You couldn't just leave because you wanted to. You had to have a, a very high a strong justifiable reason as to why you were leaving. Uh, you had church discipline that could be levied for something seemingly as small as laxity in church attendance. So if you just, eh, I don't want to go to church, you know, and, and there's laxity in church, you could be under church discipline for that. They took church attendance very, very seriously. Uh, and this comes from a very high view of ecclesiology or a doctrine of the church, it was not a place where people could come and do as they please. They couldn't come and go as they please. They couldn't act as they wanted. This was where God's people were constituted to worship and serve him. And so there needed to be order. There needed to be uh, a high responsibility given what the scriptures require about uh, church attendance. So as a member for a particular Baptist, you were committing yourself to the people of God and following the biblical model of church membership. So it was not to be taken lightly. So this included not creating unnecessary divisions in the church and having unity in the church, which is really the ultimate theme here that we see in these principles laid out in the first and second London Baptist confessions of faith, unity, patience, love, with the people of God in spite of their errors and their sinfulness. Okay, so that's the theme that we see. Unity is the theme of this paragraph. Church members should reconcile with one another, be patient, 
not cause disorder in the body of Christ. Uh, and as part of that theme of unity, uh, this paragraph and these paragraphs in both confessions, they're emphasizing the importance of trusting the process, so to speak, trusting the process. So God has laid out a specific process, and therefore we need to follow that. We shouldn't leave or try to disrupt that process and cause all kinds of problems because somebody offended me or sinned against me. I'm to follow that process that God has given for dealing with sin in the church. And we trust God that the outcome will be just. And that's really where the the principle here in, in the second London, it says, but to wait upon Christ in the further proceeding of the church. So you're waiting upon Christ, you're trusting Christ, that he is going as the head of his church, that Christ is going to work these things out. And we know from Matthew 18 as well, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And that's in the context of church discipline and dealing with these matters within the church. Now, you could probably, you could obviously make broader application, but in terms of Jesus's usage of that, that talking, that's talking about church discipline in dealing with difficulties within the church. So there has to be this process that needs to be followed, and Christ as the head of his church knows what's happening, and he's going to deal with those things. He's going to uh, ensure that those things are worked out in accordance with his word. And it certainly might not be um, you know, something that might be to our liking necessarily, but it will be in accordance with his will, in accordance with his word and his good pleasure. And that's what we have to trust as Christ being the head of the church, that those things will be taken care of. Um, Unfishable said to give you more backstory. I have been at three SBC churches and two free will and one Calvinistic. I didn't know about the doctrines of grace until the second church. The first we move to a city three hours. So it sounds like you're uh, in the second revoked teaching privileges because of teaching on the Reformation. Oof, uh, that's not good. Well, I, I would say, brother, find a good Reformed church. Um, you know, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm of the Reformed Baptist leaning. So if you can find a, a good Reformed Baptist church that's confessional, um, you know, find, find one if you can. Um, even a good OPC um, or a good PCA church. Uh, could be helpful too. You know, we would disagree on covenant theology and infant baptism, but uh, you know, it's better than nothing, I guess. Um, so those are some good places to, um, you know, to check out if you're if you're able to. And sometimes there's not always those churches around where you are, but you find one that is biblical and sticking with, um, you know, the biblical uh, revelation of of God and. Uh, and I think you'll be in, in a good place. So hopefully that's that provides some some help there. I'm sorry you're having a hard time finding a um, a church. Um, you know those things can definitely be difficult, especially as you're come. You know if you're coming to the Calvinistic persuasion, that definitely can be more difficult um, as people tend to push back who who have never heard those things or don't like those things. They will push. They will sometimes push back hard uh, on those things. So. Um, I wish you the best, brother, in that, and I'll definitely keep you in prayer as you are uh, lurking for a good church. All right, so we're going to dig a little bit into this paragraph here. So I'm going to kind of parse it out a little bit and make some biblical application 
in, in each section. So if we're looking at, uh, you know, what are we to do when a Christian sins against us? So this is having performed their duty required of them. That's what it says in our confession of faith in terms of how we're to, um, how we're to lay these things out, right? Having performed their duty required of them. This is Matthew 18. Okay, and this is one of the proof texts that's applied here in this particular paragraph. So Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Sorry, looking for my drink here. Got to keep my voice going here. All right. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So again, this is one of the proof texts that are given in the paragraph, right? That are given in the paragraph here to reference. Uh, the people of God are not to let sin continue in the church, right? Not to let sin continue in the church. Um, according to the respective duties laid out in Matthew 18. So there is a quote-unquote due process that is given here uh, for the person that's been offended and how they're to deal with these things, right? They're not to go and just run around gossiping. They're not to be, uh, you know, making a scene as it relates to being offended. They're to go through this process, all right? That's this is to establish church order. There is a process that's involved here and it starts small and it gets bigger as the process goes on, depending on the offenders response to uh, confrontation. OK, so the first step here that we see in Matthew 18, you go to the offender alone. OK, we're to go to our brother who has offended us and not let sin fester or take hold. And this is not to be a public spectacle. Right. And that's where, you know, the thing about gossip comes in. We're not to be gossiping about the brother who sinned against us. We're not to be spreading things that are rumors that are a result of the sin of the person. We just go to that person and deal with it. Hey, brother, you know, you I'm just giving an example of what could happen. You know, hey, brother, you've sinned against, you know, you you said this thing that, you know, it, scripture says not to act that way. And, and you you were offensive to me in that way. You know, I just wanted to graciously call you out to that uh, and call you to repent or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, it could change depending on the situation, but that's the mindset that we're to have. Right. You go to the brother one on one. It's not a public spectacle and you deal with it. OK, you won your brother back if he repents. Oh, brother, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to speak to you like that. You're right. I was wrong. And you move on. Right. You move on. So. And I think there are some situations where, you know, someone might have sinned against me, but, you know, I could either let it go or, or if needed, talk to a wise brother about it for the sake of clarity. Um, you know, maybe you're not sure you're like, wow, that, that brother did that thing against me. And I, it seems weird, but I can't put my finger on it, whether it's sin or not. Okay. Maybe it's good to go talk to another brother and get clarity, a wise brother in private. Hey brother, can you help me understand this? I'm, I'm a little confused. Okay. And you move on. Um, I, I think there it's not just the brother sins and you go walk to the brother and you, uh, you know, deal with it, confront him with it. So I, I think there's 
it's situationally dependent, right? So I think that we have to kind of uh, keep that in mind too. Because uh, when we go to a brother and we're confronting them on sin, you better be darn 100% sure that that was sin that that brother did. There's no doubt in your mind that that is sin. Uh, otherwise, you could get into the danger of slander, falsely accusing someone. You might offend that brother by saying something false about them and making a false accusation about them and bearing false witness about them. So, I mean, there's there's all kinds of problems. So come prepared and be sure of what you're saying is actually sinful before going uh, to that brother. And I think that there is a balance, too, between going to someone for their sin against you and being patient with the, the other brother. Um, otherwise, we might be going to brothers all the time uh, if they sin against us all the time because of our tendency to sin. We might say something and not even realize that we're saying something out of turn. I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities for that. And you could get into this spiral of just constantly peppering somebody with their problems, uh, which I don't think would be helpful either. You know, you look at Colossians 3, 12 through 13, and I think it's clear that we're to be long suffering and forgiving our brethren as Christ forgave us. Uh, I don't see how it would be long suffering with our brethren if we are always pointing out faults that they commit against us in an immediate fashion. You know, oh, this brother sinned against me, so I'm just going to go poke him with it. That could turn easily into uh, being cruel, being demeaning in a way that is just not consistent with the spirit of what Jesus, I think, is trying to tell us here in Matthew 18, that we're to be loving our brother and doing so in patience and long suffering. So in my opinion, I think there has to be a balance between um, you know, calling out a brother for sin, but also being patient, long suffering. And sometimes it might just work itself out without ever having to go to that brother. What the brother might come to me and realize he's sinned and apologize before I even say anything, or you might just move on and let it go. It's like it's okay, brother. It's it just kind of you know water under the bridge. It is what it is, you know, and you don't have to deal with it. That's my opinion. So I I think that that's why it's kind of hard to give a cookie cutter um, scenario for something like this because there's a lot of factors I think that could come into play as you're dealing with this. But if someone is confronted with their sin in accordance with Matthew 18 and they don't repent, when you go to your brother, it's to escalate a little bit. Now you bring another brother, you bring a witness with you. Hey, I need someone else to come and back me up here in terms of, uh, you know, pressing this brother on his sin and calling him to repent. And then if that brother still doesn't repent after this, that's where it gets escalated to the church, and there needs to be a formal church discipline process. And that's really what Jesus uh, is laying out here. And so that's the general principle of our confession here. This process has to take place, and as that process is taking place, we're not to leave, cause disorder, uh, separate ourselves from the ordinances, and uh, we're to wait the process out. And it might not be a short process, and typically it's not, especially for issues of, of egregious sin. You know, someone might be caught in an adulterous relationship, or they might be an alcoholic, or something. Like that. Things that are very sensitive in nature and require delicate handling, right? So they might, you know, the process might be elongated or might be short. It just depends. That's why Jesus, I think, is giving us your general principles that we can apply to different situations. He's not giving um, 
you know, a strict cookie cutter scenario that's going to be the same in everywhere. The principles are the same and the commands are the same, but I think the application of them will depend on the situation. Okay. So our confession wants to ensure that the proper process is followed, right? We shouldn't run for the hills with the problems while this process is going on uh, or even before it. The offense of the brother should not prompt us to leave a church, right? That's not a good reason, according to our, um, according to our confession. Not necessarily, anyways. So we have to be careful with that. Another aspect of this paragraph ought to disturb any church order. Okay? We're not to disturb any church order. So unity and peace are in mind here. Okay? There shouldn't be any division or dissension, all of which disturb any church order. So the process is going on, um, and we're, we're not to disturb that process, and certainly not to disturb, it says any church order. So anything in the church that's being, uh, if we're not to cause problems because of an offense of what somebody did, right? There isn't to be division that turns into dis disturbing the peace of the church over someone offending me or sinning against me, right? So we have to be really careful about that. Um, stirring up dissension and discord and division unnecessarily among brethren is serious. Uh, Proverbs 619, a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among brother. This is part of that list, those six, seven things the Lord hates, right? That are detestable to him. One who sows discord among brethren. It doesn't say the discord itself. It says one who sows discord. So this is a person. God hates. He loathes the person who sows discord among brethren. And my guess is in light of the fact that the process is to be followed in dealing with sin in particular brother, this is referring to you know, in our confession, church order and dealing with the sin of the offender, although I think it has broader application to church order in general. I think that's kind of probably the mindset here in our confession. Um, but there's nothing here that leaves any room for sowing division among Christians. You can't. If you're following that process in Matthew 18, you are not going to be causing problems in the church. You're not going to be sowing discord and dissension, talking behind people's backs unnecessarily. You're going to follow the process, right? And that requires unity. That requires peace. Okay. And the scripture, again, Proverbs 6, God hates those who do such things. As in really says that, uh, you know, he hates those who sow discord among brethren. God obviously doesn't hate Christians, but the implication is if you're living this way, if this is something you're doing, you're living like an unbeliever. So you're living like someone God hates, right? So, Christians who sow discord, you're putting yourself in a precarious situation because you're living like a pagan. You're living like someone God hates, right? You have to be really careful about that. Uh, and it's such a serious matter that it that itself can lead to church discipline. Titus 3, 9 through 11, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man. After the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Ouch. That's some pretty strong language there. Very, very strong language uh, as it relates to dealing with a divisive person. So he needs to be repented of, and it can lead to church discipline. So it's it's serious business. Uh, it It's serious, serious business. 
and stirring up discord and division because of my offense with another brother in the church can lead to a root of bitterness too, right? Hebrews 12, 14 through 15, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Look carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up causing trouble, and by this many become defiled. So after giving a discourse on discipline from our Heavenly Father, this is the con you know part of the context of Hebrews 12 here, of this passage, he presses his listeners to move on in holiness, uh, and he picks very interesting sins to focus on, division and bitterness, right? Out of all the sins you could talk about, in light of God disciplining us, and us moving forward in light of that, he picks division and bitterness to talk about. Sounds like it's a pretty important issue here for church life, okay? And this means, in fact, that unity among brethren is tied to that holiness with which no one will see the Lord. Again, this is serious business here, okay? So, in light of that, too, we're not to resort to bitterness. We're not to let that bitter root hold on to us, that root of bitterness hold on to us and cause all kinds of problems in the church. We're to love one another, we're to be unified. doesn't mean we have to agree on every little thing. There are things of uh, secondary tertiary issues that we can disagree on, yet still be unified on those core issues and love one another through, right? We are to seek peace as Christians. And how can we say, as a Christian, we love God, yet hate our brother, right? Scripture doesn't know any such category as that. We've got to be really careful about how we, you know, before we have knee-jerk reactions, before we start throwing hissy fits about people in the church, that we think about these categories. Am I letting a root of bitterness come in? Am I causing dissension and division in the church? Is that what I'm doing? Or do I need to just let these things go and let it water under the bridge? Um, those are things uh, to consider as we look at these passages. And then, of course, the major doctrine here is unity, right? Ephesians 4, I think, is probably one of the most helpful places that we can look at these different elements of uh, the text, or of, of unity here. Uh, let's look at Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we're to be long-suffering, lowliness and gentleness, bearing with one another in love, right? That's to be the main uh, way that we seek unity in the church. We're to love one another, be long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, and we're to endeavor to keep that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then Paul goes on in the very next set of verses to say that we are unified in one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So all these doctrinal things that we unify around are tied to our practical unity as it relates to how we treat each other, right? How can we honestly say that we are doing what Paul has commanded here if, in fact, we're sowing division among God's people? How is one bearing up with other Christians if they are leaving their churches over petty squabbles between brethren. And I th what this does show, I think, is an infantile mind that has not grown up in the unity of the faith, so that one 
is not tossed around by every wind of doctrine. Because again, later on in Ephesians 4, Paul will say that he's given ministers and evangelists, pastors, teachers to the church to build up the body of Christ so that they grow in what? Unity, right? In the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They're growing up. They're no longer uh, being to, uh, you know, pushed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, right? And that's all tied back to the unity found in Ephesians 4.1, right? Because of that doctrinal unity, it's tied directly to that practical unity of how we treat our brethren. But we're unified around Jesus Christ. It's impossible for you to have discord among the church because you're unified around those core doctrines that God has given. So doctrine and practice are tied closely together. You can't have one without the other. You, you can have the head knowledge of doctrine, right? You can say, oh, yeah, I believe in that. But it needs to come forth and apply in your life. And here in the application of unity, it's going to come forth in the application of long-suffering, patience, love for other brother. Again, it's not, we're not going to do so perfectly, but that is going to be the normal life of a Christian, period. Okay? That's going to be the normal life of a Christian. And if we're not living in unity, how can we grow up in the faith and have that truly affect how we live? If we're just leaving a church because, you know, so-and-so offended me, how in the world can you truly abide by that principle? Okay. And going to another church where people are like you and everything is nice and neat isn't real unity necessarily. And it isn't real unity at all if you have burned bridges or left your church because somebody offended you, not dealing with the problem properly, right? Over offenses given. It's a facade if we do that. You're not showing real unity because you've left all these problems back at your other church that you haven't dealt with, right? There's no real unity then because you're not doing what Paul said to do. True unity is loving your brother and impressing on with them in spite of their sinful problems. That is the unity that the scripture is saying. That, and that's what we read from Hans or Nollies. No church is going to be perfect. There's going to be issues. There's going to be problems, going to be doctrinal differences. Um, and of course, there are doctrinal differences that can't stand, that have to be dealt with. But there are going to be things that are of less importance that we're going to differ on. We're going to have different opinions on. We have to be long-suffering and patient with those brethren, um, even if our patience and long-suffering is imperfect, um, but we're to strive towards that and to love our brethren. We don't run because of problems that come up like that, okay? Uh, and in fact, the scriptures teach that one can't even worship God if he has offended his brother and the matter is left unresolved. Uh, he's to reconcile first, then come back to worship. You see this in Matthew 5, 23 through 20. Six in the context of talking about sinful anger and insulting your brother. You need to go deal with that problem first, then come back and worship. So the worship of God is seen as so important that you can't even worship him properly without reconciling with your brother that you offended, right? And this is assuming that you know about it, right? He says, if you remember it, you leave your sacrifice at the altar, you go deal with the problem, and you come back, right? So unity is is such a crucial aspect of church life and the Christian life. And then looking here at 
it says to or administration of any ordinances. So you're not only absent yourself from the church, cause uh, church disorder, but we're also to not uh, pull ourselves away from the administration of the ordinances. Now, in the context of the confession, um, this probably is referring to baptism and the Lord's Supper, maybe preaching, but in terms of ordinances, I think it's just baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, since there are no other ordinances that the confession prescribes. But through the Supper, the Lord's Table, and baptism, we do have uh, the means that God has given us to see Christ pictured there, right? Especially in the table, because uh, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 11, 26, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians, no, it's 1 Corinthians 11, 26. 1 Corinthians 11, 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he's come. So it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Christ's work on the cross for his people. It's a reminder of that. And Jesus established this as a way of remembering him. Do this in remembrance of me. That's something that's to be done on a regular basis with the corporate gathered people of God. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is laying out uh, prescriptions for how the church is to act in light of dealing with the Lord's Supper and rebuking them for abusing it. So he's laying out what this is here. So it's a direct proclamation of the death of Christ, the essence of the gospel uh, work in dealing with our in terms of dealing with our sins. Okay. So it not only speaks to unbelievers or pagans, but it actually ministers to believers. If you jump ahead in the Second London Baptist Confession, chapter 30, uh, paragraph 1, it says, The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing to all the world the sacrifice of himself in his death, confirmation of the faith of believers in the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all the duties which they owe him and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. So it's confirming faith and encourages us in the gospel. So for Christians to absent yourself from that is to shoot yourself in the foot, right? It'd be like cutting off your foot and then saying, I'm just going to go walk normally, right? And of course not. You're going to limp along. You're going to need crutches. You're going to need a wheelchair or something to help you uh, along, you're not going to be at full capacity where you should be, right? Because you cut off your foot. You did something stupid like that. Uh, so why would you absent yourself from the ordinances of God that he's given as a means of grace to the people of God, to your own soul? Why would you absent yourself from that? Because somebody offended you. Uh, so we're not to do that, right? We're not to do that. The, the Lord's Supper has real grace conferred to that believer uh, by its preaching of the gospel, ministering to us, giving us um, that confirmation of faith and spiritual nourishment and growth in him. So why would we want to absent ourselves from that? Because somebody offended us, right? So we have to think through all of these different categories of, of uh, you know, implications for leaving a church, right? We have to we have to think about those things. We have to think about those things carefully. Now, some closing thoughts here, just maybe some uh, some closing application here. Leaving a church should be taken seriously. Okay, it's not something to be taken lightly. And as the particular Baptist thought in terms of church membership, we should as well. It should not be something that's taken lightly. We should, uh, as churches, the pastor should hold their uh, their 
flock accountable for how they live in light of their membership commitments and members should hold themselves accountable as Christians for uh, being committed to that local church. And this is not, this is something in terms of taking membership seriously, that was non-negotiable for the particular Baptists. Le leaving a church had to have a proper justification. It wasn't something you could just do. And this clearly wasn't a justifiable reason for doing it in terms of being offended by someone else. Uh, that was not one of the reasons. True unity means coming to some kind of resolution with brethren over our offenses. Okay? And number three, claiming Christ while hating your brother, which unnecessary division is. You're not loving your brother if you're not being long-suffering with him, being patient with him. Uh, you're, you're not doing that, right? And I say unnecessary division because there are divisions that are necessary. There are, you know, somebody is going down a road, they're going to heresy. Uh, you can't follow them down that road. You have to say, no, brother, you know, you're going down a road I can't follow because that, that would be a problem. And I call you back. I call you back. Um, but that's a discussion for another day. But unnecessary division where you're sowing discord, causing problems in the church, uh, you're not loving your brethren by doing that because you're not doing what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4. And in fact, not loving your brethren uh, is living like a pagan and is not Christian. First John 4.20. Okay. Uh, number four, appealing to Paul and Barnabas's division in Acts 15, is not a positive example of handling division in the church, and especially for handling when a brother offends you. And in fact, I would say that the situation with Paul and Barnabas probably should have fallen under a Matthew 18 model in terms of how it was being dealt with, because it does seem that the situation um, got heated. And this seems to be, when I was reading John Gill's commentary on this, this seems to be where he was going as well in terms of that it seems that there was some heated discussion going on here because they had such a sharp division. Um, it wasn't something that they just agreed to disagree on necessarily. It seems that they had some real contention there about Mark, who apparently had abandoned uh, the ministry. Paul said, no, I don't want to bring him. Barnabas said, yes, we should bring him. And they just, they, you know, went full mortal combat on each other, it seems. And, uh, you know, ended up parting ways. And you can see this story in Acts 15, 36 through 41. But in terms of using this as a justification for leaving a church because of uh, sharp disagreement, uh, it, that's a, a ridiculous notion to, to use that as some sort of justification. The text in Acts 15 nowhere says, nor implies that their division was warranted, nor does it support it. That's important. Okay. The text merely reports the relevant facts of the matter. Acts is a historical book, right? It's meant to provide us historical information, not necessarily to provide us a picture for how we should live. Now, there are places where we can certainly glean application to our own lives um, in as much as they are consistent with other scriptures, right? But the actions that Paul was and Barnabas were exhibiting here were not consistent with Ephesians 4. Right. They weren't bearing up with one another. They weren't being patient with one another. Right. Uh, and I, I think there's problems there um, when dealing with that. So I think when we're looking at other clearer passages, which our confession also says that we're to do when interpreting the scriptures, we're not just to pull one passage out and hold this up over here. We're to use other passages that speak more clearly on the subject to actually help us 
understand the less clear passages. The passages in Acts 15 doesn't give us a lot of detail about what happened. It's merely reporting the facts. But we do know what Paul says in other places about how we're to handle situations uh, as it relates to, um, you know, brethren we disagree with, right? And it doesn't seem he or Barnabas were doing that since they got into such hot contention um, with one another and caused, uh, I think, unnecessary um, division at this point. But as John Gill says in his commentary, it was, you know, there was um, God's providence overruled the situation and they both went their way and preached the word, right? Um, I just don't see Paul being and Barnabas being consistent with Paul's own understanding. And I think that it shows that Paul was also a man, even though an apostle, he was not some super saint. He still had problems uh, that he had to work through. Paul was not above the flesh as any of us are. Okay. So Acts 15 is not a place that we should be using uh, to support leaving a church because of some kind of, of division. Ridiculous. Uh, the theme of Paul in multiple places is unity, 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 right? Unity um, on those uh, crucial uh, areas. And uh, the only place we can have division is where uh, someone is in, in grave sin and they're unrepentant. Or uh, we see someone chasing false doctrine, or they're enticing us to live in sin. We can't go down that road. There are places for legitimate division. But if we're going to simply use this because someone offended me and I don't you know, want to attend a church anymore, I'm going to use Acts 15 as a way to, uh, to justify leaving. That's not an excuse for leaving. Okay. And then finally, adding to the principle of loving your brother how is it loving to put unnecessary division because you're offended by somebody's sin against you on your elder or elders, uh, which causes them to be taken away from focusing on teaching the word and other more important matters in the church? How are you loving your elders by doing that? By putting your petty squabbles um, that you're not dealing with properly on your pastor. How is that biblical? How is that loving to your elders when they're supposed to be focused on teaching the word, shepherding um, the flock. And sometimes it's good for a pastor to come in and, and deal with certain issues uh, and your elders, even if they might seem petty, to prevent them from blowing up into things greater. But just by the mere um, you know, sinful actions of creating division over someone offending you, that is not... Uh, you know, doing any service to your elders who now have to deal with a sin issue unnecessarily, right? When they didn't, when this situation never to be created in the first place and it distracts them, right? I don't see how that's loving uh, to your elders at all, okay? The focus should be on other matters, not problems you have caused because of your sinful heart, right? Um, although they, you know, they have to deal with it by virtue of their job, it's something that could have been avoided in the first place. Love is not rude, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. So I hope that this has provided some helpful discussion surrounding this topic. Um, definitely not an easy one. Again, I'm, I'm providing um, what I think are general principles. I'm not trying to you know, say in every situation it's got to be an exact science. Again, there's, like I said with Matthew 18, I think there's different factors that have to come into play. But we do have the commands of Scripture and the general principles laid out. And we need to live in light of those things, those prescriptive principles and those prescriptive 
commands that we have. We need to live in light of them. Um, but how that flushes out might look different in different places. So I definitely um, hope this has been helpful. I see another question here from uh, Unfishable. What if the elders agree that women teaching the whole body is okay as long as a male leader is on stage? I went to the senior pastor directly and was told uh, they agreed. I'm just a volunteer layman. Well, if a woman is is teaching the corporate body in worship, I, I think the scriptures are clear on that, that uh, women should not be doing that. Um, yeah, I mean, 1 Corinthians 14, um, 1 Timothy 2, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Uh, there are places where the scriptures are very clear that uh, men are to be the ones who are teaching uh, in the church. Uh, whether it be your pastor or, and elders preaching to the people and teaching the people corporately, that's really to be um, for the men. That's the the way God has uh, prescribed. Um, so it sounds like there's some ecclesiastical problems there um, that uh, you're dealing with at whatever church this is, your current church or an old church. Um, good questions, though. You know, it's that's definitely an issue that's I think becoming more prominent as it relates to women teaching in the church and trying to make that more acceptable, um, you know, as it relates to, at the very least, as it relates to corporate, uh, you know, the corporate worship and women teaching. Uh, definitely a, uh, not an easy issue to deal with, but I hope that's helpful, uh, unfishable as you're working through these, these issues. Well, anyways, I think that's all we got for today. Um, Hopefully everyone didn't fall asleep, and hopefully this has been beneficial. But thank you for joining today, uh, and Lord willing, we will be back next week. Everyone have a great weekend, and Lord's Day tomorrow. Take care.